Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Clocked In with the Press, hosted at Altman Studios in Brentwood, California. In this podcast, we highlight news stories and individuals in the community that deserve your attention. For breaking or full news stories and to stay updated on the latest Contra Costa County happenings, you can check out our website and Facebook at thepress.net or Twitter and Instagram at PressClockedIn. We also have a free app titled The Press that can deliver your news on the go. This is Caitlin Gleason, Clocking In. Today, we get to talk with Frank Pettinger, a man who published a manuscript written by his father about experiences in World War II. Before we bring him onto the show, however, let's hear a word from this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Sip and Scoop in downtown Brentwood. Sip and Scoop delivers smiles for miles, sip by sip, and scoop by scoop. Gelato, Italian ice, and signature coffee beverages are just a few of the delicious treats on their menu. Stop by Sip and Scoop at 234 Oak Street in downtown Brentwood to get your fix. They're also on DoorDash. Thank you so much to this week's sponsor, Frank. Thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to thank the Brentwood Press also for publishing the interview and the article about my father's book, Cross Bears. Ernest Pettinger is the author. I was being told about it uh, prior to the interview and the different, I think, layers to the story of how this story has come to be is just really great. So to start off, tell me a little bit more about the book in general for listeners who might not have heard about it. Be happy to. This was a story uh, my father passed on to me. Mm-hmm. He had typed it out on over 300 pages in the late 1940s. So on a typewriter. Yeah, a typewriter, oh, wow. <laughs> right. On onion skin paper, very fragile old paper still. And he handed it to me on a plastic tray. And he said, okay, I would like you to publish this. And I would like the proceeds to go to charity and worthy causes. So <laughs> I didn't really take that seriously until I got older. I looked at it and kind of just put it away in storage. And, mm-hmm. and as time went on, I started to look more seriously at the content of the book. And I, when I started reading through it and looked at the scope of the project, I realized this book was a genuine historical treasure. It was a glimpse in real time of the events and experiences he was going through in World War II in the U.S. Army. And this is the period from 1942 to 1945. It was unusual because he was 33 years old when he was drafted into the Army and mm-hmm. drafted or joined. I, that wasn't clear to me, but he joined in at 33. Normally today, young men are going in 20, 22, and they have a whole different approach and fitness level. But he was 33 years old when he was drafted. He took the time to chronicle his experiences from the perspective of someone who grew up in the hills and countryside north of Los Angeles, relatively free from racial and religious prejudices. This memoir of his includes his discoveries through observations and conversations with other GIs, Australians, allies, natives, about equality. So Mm -hmm. it was a big process of discovery for him. He takes us through his personal experiences in basic training, which through injury and illness, he had to repeat three times. And as the story unfolds, you can see that that actually probably saved his life, or at least saved the kind of experience he was exposed to. He went into the blisteringly hot Southern California, they call it desert center training camp near Death Valley. And Mm. in those days, they didn't have air conditioning in their vehicles. That's really brutal. (laughs) Yeah. The story also takes through his embarkation through the San Francisco port to Sydney, Australia, 
Next, we go on a two-year journey with him into New Guinea and the Philippines. At the end of the war, it ended. He was in the war for the full duration in the United States' involvement till we dropped the bombs on Japan and they surrendered. So that, in fact, is a summary of the book itself and uh, how it came to be. So my role in this was just to figure out how to get it published mm-hmm. from the typewritten pages to a digitized form. And how long did it take for you to get the story published? Well, the process was lengthy because it was on paper. As I said, it had to be converted. Uh, not being a typist, I tried different ways of getting it into a digital format. First, I tried scanning it and then OCRing it. That required a lot of editing, and it just wasn't worth it. I may as well have typed it straight out. Then I tried dictating it. That worked pretty good, but it still needed a lot of editing. Finally, after I retired, I <laughs> paid someone to type it, about the last two-thirds of the book. So it was now digitized, but then I had to proof it and compare each page to the digitized format, cross-referencing it. And that took several weeks. Then, while I was waiting for the copyright to be granted, I got a hold of a consultant, and they explained to me the three different avenues that I could pursue for publishing this book. One was commercial publisher. That was the most expensive. It involved doing book tours and that sort of thing. I did not pursue that. The second was going to university presses that specialized in the subject matter fields, like World War II, Pacific Theater. I did approach two or three. One right away had a conflict of interest with another book they were publishing, and so I didn't really pursue that uh, avenue very far, but then self-publishing was pretty straightforward. Once I had the digitized format, I just had to transfer it into a format that was useful on Amazon, and that's where I ended up publishing it as an ebook. I will note that uh, in the copyright process, there was a, uh, I was contacted, I figured it was, you know, pretty straightforward. You file for a copyright, you've got a manuscript, it's granted. But the copyright office called me and said, what's the deal with this? This book was written in the 1940s. The author's listed as Ernest Pettinger. You're filing as Frank Pettinger. How do you explain this? And I had to tell them that the book was given to me, that I really wasn't an author in the book. I'd only edited parts of it that needed bridges and that sort of thing, very basic fundamental stuff where pages were missing. Mm. And that I wanted him to take the author's credit. And they, they were satisfied with that, and they granted me the copyright. So I would say from beginning to end, several years, okay. because I wasn't working on it full time. But it, it, it was an arduous process of converting a typewritten page from 1940. Mm. five to a digitized format to today. I do find it interesting that the copyright office had to say something about it being something written by your father and then his son was the one who actually was trying to copyright it and getting published. I didn't even think about actually that there would be a concern from the office in that in that aspect. You're right about that. It was um it showed me there there you just figured it would be an easy submit and it's passed, but mm-hmm. they actually are doing their job. Mm-hmm. And they asked a valid question, and we went back and forth a little bit, and then they were satisfied. I would probably predict that there is also that problem when it comes to writing under a pen name, and then a person tries to copyright a story from a pen name, and then they publish under their own name. I wouldn't be surprised there. But to kind of get now to the content of the book a little bit more, what are your favorite, or rather, what do you believe are, for you personally, one of the more interesting parts of the book? Well, I have to tell you, I love this book 
Mm-hmm. And not just because it's my dad's story, but it's so nuanced. There are so many interesting parts to it. For example, I mentioned earlier the Desert Center training facility. This was set up to train troops to do marching maneuvers and truck and uh, heavy equipment maneuvers in Africa. Mm. North Africa was really hot. And so (laughs) they were there for several months doing maneuvers in the desert. They were given a small quart of water at the beginning of the day and told, this has got to last you all day, and you still have to have enough left over to wash your socks. And so it was not an easy matter. Mm. You're in this 115-degree temperature, no air conditioning, driving trucks in the dust and uh, doing maneuvers like a big wagon train out there and have one quart of water to last you the day. So not only that, but he got... (laughs) We mentioned he had various injuries in his basic training, so he was hospitalized and had pulled out of duty. In this case, he had his buttocks was so raw from riding in the truck all day that he was put in the hospital. Oh wow! Yeah, and taken out of uh, circulation for a while. So that it was kind of cute the way he looked at it. Uh, you know, their goal was always to go to a local bar and get some beer. You know, and fortunately, his life was improved because he wasn't a foot soldier, but he became a truck driver. Mm. And that kept him from the basic drudgery of walking and hiking and soldier maneuvers. So the Desert Center, I'd never heard of it before, even Mm -hmm. though it's near Palm Springs on the way to Arizona. I had never heard of it, but when he revealed the stories that were going on there and the personalities and the people's interaction and guys going AWOL and coming back and they needed, apparently needed folks so bad they didn't punish them or discipline people for not being there, but they certainly did send them off to battle. So the Desert mm-hmm. Center Training Center, that was one. When he got to Sydney, Australia, it's the first time he'd ever seen anything like that. He, his culture shock there was pretty dramatic. They converted the Ascot racetrack near Sydney that was set up for GIs to do their duties and handle getting ready to go to the South Pacific. In the meantime, while they were stationed there, they were called into play to unload cargo ships because there was a big strike going on in Australia that time, the the Teamsters. And so the soldiers were unloading trucks or boats, and he'd walk around Sydney. He'd see big mattresses on top of cars, and he'd kind of figure, what what the heck's that for? And he asked somebody, it basically is an extra gas tank they would fill up an inflatable gas tank riding around on the top of the cars. He saw for the first time in his life men wearing shorts walking around on the streets, and he thought, look at all these guys with hairy legs. They should be embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) He said shorts? That's the biggest culture (laughs) shock. Well, in the 1940s and growing up in Los Angeles, Mm. yeah, he wasn't so keen on that. But Mm -hmm. So those are some of the stories. But he took day hikes on his days off into the jungles of New Guinea and the Philippines. And there was extremely vivid detail in some of these adventures he took. And I was, I often wondered, how did he recreate these stories in that degree of detail? And unfortunately, I never got to ask him that mm. question. But some of the other stories, though, that, that get even better from here are um, driving through New Guinea and the Philippines. Basically, these are jungle environments. On one occasion, the road was covered with giant, vicious crabs that would be like wading through water, he said, up to your knees. They were so thick 
but he had to drive through them and they would get crushed under the wheels of the truck because they're doing these maneuvers. They had to do shipping, move things back and forth. And he said it smelled like fresh fish when he left, but when he came back, it didn't smell so good. <laughs> <laughs> he got out with the, you know, to try and keep the, the crabs away from his truck, and one of them came right at him, tried to bite him. So he got back in his truck and just kept driving. So the giant crab scene then... Another case in New Guinea, he ran into a swarm of flying locusts, millions of them. Oh, gross. <laughs> oh, I hate locusts. Well, they were so thick. They were going in his truck, getting in his face, up his sleeves. There was nothing he could do. But they were covering the road again with this, you know, they had to just drive over them. And when he came back on that road, they had already started rotting in the sun and the stench of the smell was just awful. It was just a terrible experience, but there's nothing he could do. He had to keep going. He had to keep delivering and shipping and moving. There was an episode in the book that I would call The Black Hand, where he was driving at night. And of course, he was very vigilant about Japanese soldiers in there were kind of renegades because they'd pretty well cleared the island of, of most Japanese, but there were still some holdouts. And he was driving along the truck and he heard banging on his truck and he started driving faster, and then something went into his cab, and he thought, oh, my goodness, this is a grenade. I've got 10 seconds, and I'm, he was trying to reach for it and, and counting, and at the same time, he was praying, <laughs> nine, eight, seven, six, and keep going, and he just kept going and accelerating. He couldn't stop because he thought someone would jump on the truck and, and try to kill so I call that the black hand. A black hand passed in front of his face when he was driving, and he was totally terrified and he the truck crashed and I'm not going to reveal the whole story but the black hand I would call it the black hand episode another one of my favorites in this book was what I would call the operation in Philippines they set up makeshift tents for surgery that were enclosed by screens but he was fascinated by the medical procedure and was looking through these screens to see the surgeries that were going on. And they told him, oh, this night is going to be a particularly complex surgery. And they basically did brain surgery with the patient alive, taking off the top of his skull to, to remove a shrapnel piece. Oh, my goodness. Every night he would go and watch these operations and he would describe them and people that he had seen in the jungle, that he had, the natives that he'd gotten back to the troops to, for medical care were being operated on and treated. So he, he chronologizes all of this. Mm. And so it's quite a story. Oh, it has, it's definitely quite a story. I think it's also interesting because when people think about World War II, they think about the European front and they think about Japan and, and Okinawa and they kind of think of those two main areas. Australia and New Guinea and the Philippines were just as vital in terms of the strategies of World War II and to kind of hear that type of account when the more popular accounts always cover those larger areas. I just think it's so interesting to hear about them. Obviously, this story has a lot of information and, and experiences of your father. Growing up, did your father verbally account his experiences during World War II to you, or was this manuscript one of the first times that you really got to learn about his service? You know, only in very broad strokes. He never recalled any of these stories to me, and I think he typed it up and put it behind him. Mm. He did tell me things like he was a truck driver, 
He got shot at, heard a gunshot, but uh, when he got back to camp, he found a bullet hole under his seat. Something like that, you know, he would tell me that. But uh, he brought back a few artifacts, a walking stick that had a lot of jewels in it, some nice inlays in it, and a Japanese rifle and a flag. He told me a little bit about those, but he was always trading for goodies, you know, and the big trade in those days was cigarettes. Mm. People, he would give cigarettes, packs of cigarettes, in exchange for goods or something that he wanted, something valuable. In most cases, now, in some cases, the natives would only go for money because they wanted to get married. But I know that only from the book. He never told me those things. He just mm. brought back some artifacts broad strokes only, never really recalled it, didn't stay in touch with anybody that I know of from the war. Mm -hmm. It was something that he never really had a connection to as far as I was concerned. Mm. So perhaps that was another reason I didn't put any emphasis on looking at the story when he gave it to me. And I never knew he was such a good writer because the book was so well written, it didn't need any editing to speak of. And you think about doing that with a typewriter, they didn't have whiteout. Maybe he crossed out a couple things and rewrote a word once or twice in 300 pages. His story was his mm. recollections and his whole uh, emotion to that story, I think, was in that paper. Mm. Well, Frank, I am loving the stories that you're giving me so far. But before we go any further, I would like to take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. But listeners, stick around because we still have a lot of detailed stories that we get to hear from the memoir of Ernest Pettinger. Today's episode of Clocked In With The Press is brought to you by our friends at Sip and Scoop in downtown Brentwood. Sip and Scoop started out as a food truck, serving coffee, hot cocoa, and desserts on the go, but the demand was so high that they had to open a shop at 234 Oak Street. Here at Clocked In, we love Sip and Scoop. They're just a few doors down from our offices, and we're there often enough that they know our names and orders. It's like cheers, but better, because there's dessert. Try their cold brew coffee or choose a latte or Americano for a classic coffee drink that can't be beat. And we haven't even talked about their breakfast sandwiches and avocado toast. Have I mentioned the root beer flows and the iced lemonades? Those are my personal favorites. <sighs> okay, obviously I could talk about food all day, but here's the point. You gotta go to Sip and Scoop. Visit them at 234 Oak Street in downtown Brentwood or have Sip and Scoop brought to you wherever you are by DoorDash. Having an event? Let Sip and Scoop cater it. Give them a call at 925-684-7710 to find out more. Thank you so much to this week's sponsor. Back to the episode, however, one thing that I do want to ask about is which story was either the most surprising and or the most difficult to learn about as you were going through the manuscript? Yeah, one that I haven't mentioned so far, and that is stories about the intense hatred and awful treatment of the blacks in the South. He also witnessed this in talking with other white soldiers from the South. So it was shocking to me that he was so stunned by some of these detailed stories. I mean, just horrible treatment. That was the most shocking to me. He raised me to treat everybody equal mm -hmm. and not have a preference or prejudice towards religion or color of skin to give everyone a chance. That was how he lived. And so when he got in the military and he heard about blacks in the South or and he saw separate dining rooms and uh, separate bathroom facilities. In Los Angeles, in Southern California, that was not the case mm -hmm. in the 40s. And so he saw it in the South when he was going through basic training. So that was pretty shocking. 
the fact that even in war that there was still that problem of racism that existed in the military and how it showed in the all black battalions that I've read about in previous events is just really heartbreaking to hear about in that even when there were people who were giving their lives and sacrificing themselves for the greater good there was still a system that wasn't returning that same favor and doing everything it could to support them and on that very good point of yours one of the more moving parts of this story was when he was out on the road he saw a black battalion of engineers clearing the road and they were going through the jungles and one of the soldiers came running out and yelling and screaming and they're going are there japs in there are the japs in there and i don't mean to use that in a derogatory word i'm just quoting from the book that was the phrase that they used in those days and he said finally when the guy calmed down the black engineer, he said, no, there's snakes all over. There's a nest of snakes. But he said, we have to get this road through for our boys. So the attitude of the black engineers was, it's us. You know, we are working for the same purpose. And unfortunately, later in the story, he finds out that that whole black battalion was wiped out by the Japanese mm. guerrillas in that particular case. So That's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. It was a very moving story how they were dedicated to getting the job done, but yet weren't mm. able to do it because of, um, of the war. Mm. I'm curious, were there any stories that didn't make the final cut of the book, or were you able to publish the entire original manuscript? I would say 98% of the entire manuscript. There were missing pages that didn't make it because they weren't there. I had to find a way to make it the bridge. And the book didn't really end in the manuscript. It was satisfactorily concluded when the bombs were dropped on Japan and they surrendered and everybody was so relieved and happy to be going home. Mm. That is the natural ending of the story. But there were pages and parts of the story that didn't make it because there were missing mm. components. And you couldn't fill in any details that you didn't know. Oh, right, and I wouldn't do that. I only, I just made a bridge in one case where there was a, a transition that mm. uh, was missing a page. So when it came to, you know, filling the gaps and to make the story cohesive, what was your method of going about it? What was really nice for me was that I was able to hear how he thought about things how he approached things. So I put myself in his place. In this case, he was in a truck with a guard and they had just completed a run and they had to make it back to the company who was being shipped out that next day. They had been enjoying themselves. They had a nice lunch and uh, lots of alcohol and uh, they were getting a little loopy and then it cut out. So I said, all right, well, how did he get from here to being shipped out. Mm -hmm. And so I made assumptions based on what his activity had been in the past in that case. This is in the Philippines. So I, I did uh, put my mind in his, in his shoes and just walked it out mm -hmm. the best I could. On the idea of you putting yourself in your father's shoes, would you say that you had a, a good relationship with your father? I would say I had a great relationship with mm -hmm. my father. He was a terrific person. He was a self-made man. He was adventurous. He taught me to swim, to hunt, drive a stick shift, a locomotive engine, and to set up and explode dynamite he used for mining, all before I was 12 years old. Mm. 
Got to start young. (laughs) We went on uh, marathon Indian runs in the mountain trails. He had a homemade zip line in the field next to his property. He set me up an indoor shooting gallery. I would try to uh, snuff out a candle on the fireplace hearth from across the room. He would make popcorn for me in a black cast iron skillet with so much butter, I remember it bubbling over the rim of the pan. Uh, When I came home from the YMCA and Little League games, in order to get into the front door, I had to walk across a handwritten inscription in cement in front of the door that said, it matters not if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Mm. I'm certain that he and this upbringing made a difference in my life. He was also a great storyteller, as as the book uh, reveals, and his stories, to me, often had a life lesson. He taught me lessons about equality, ethics, sportsmanship, a considerate and thoughtful behavior. As a result, I grew up with my core values on race and religious equality, a reflection of his own, and as they are portrayed in this book. So do you feel like writing and publishing this manuscript helped you to feel closer to your father? I do, for sure. Though he passed away in 1969, when I started the book and was reading the words he had written, I could hear his voice again. Mm. So there's nothing more intimate than hearing your father's voice 40 years after he dies. So yes, definitely. That's really wonderful. So before I bring an end to the episode, is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, I'm grateful for this opportunity to shed more light on this wonderful story that I was entrusted with. I thank you again for having me. Crossbearers is available on Amazon as an ebook to download and on Kindle. All proceeds from this book go to Worthy Causes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Clocked In with the Press. I appreciate each and every single one of you for taking the time to listen in, and I can't wait to speak with you next time. Make sure to check out our website at thepress.net or our Twitter and Instagram at PressClockedIn. You can also download our free app, The Press, for news on the go. And I will also be including a link to the book on Amazon in the description of the episode. That's all that I have for you, and this is Caitlin Gleason, Clocking Out. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Sip and Scoop. Remember that feeling of hearing the ice cream truck coming down the street as a kid? Bring back that feeling by visiting Sip and Scoop. They started out as a truck too, and now they have a brick and mortar shop right here in Brentwood, so you don't have to chase them down the block. Sip and Scoop has all kinds of high quality desserts to satisfy any sweet tooth. Gelato, root beer floats, and iced coffees are just a few of my favorites. And the whole menu is available to go on DoorDash. Stop by their shop in downtown Brentwood and get your scoop on.